This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome back to the fourth season of the Technically Human podcast. To kick off our new season and to start the new year, I'm speaking to Muhammad Abu Bakr about a topic that is for obvious reasons on our mind in this critical moment, democracy and its stability both here in the United States and globally and its intersection with ethics and technology. Muhammad Abu Bakr is the president of the Amel Project, Amel empowers young activists from Middle Eastern and African regions and connects them with one another and with peers, leaders, and audiences in the global north in order to advance human rights for all human beings. Using online platforms, social media networks, and technological innovation, Amel provides training, mentoring, and advocacy to African and Middle Eastern activists, empowering them to step up their civil society activism while at the same time building their skills and experience to ascend to top leadership positions. Mohammed is a Sudanese human rights activist and peacemaker with a decade and a half of civil society experience. Since high school, he has founded and led organizations and initiatives focused on humanitarian, human rights, youth empowerment, and peace programs across the Middle East and Africa, including Darfur, South Sudan, Sudan, Egypt, Israel, and the Palestinian territories and beyond. Mohammed has also documented, reported, and mobilized against human rights abuses across the Middle East and Africa, and since arriving in the U.S., has become a sought-after voice at the State Department and in Congress concerning policy and human rights in the region. Hi, Mohammed. Hi, Deb. So, Mohammed, I don't want to date this episode too much, but I have with me today on the other line a global pro-democracy activist and a world-renowned critic of authoritarian governments. You currently live in D.C. and you're on your way back home to the space where yesterday a group of militant Trump supporters staged what I think could justifiably be called an attempted coup to install the leader that they support, who is the loser of the most recent election, to power. And armed and bolstered by the president's own false claims about the election being rigged or stolen, they stormed the Capitol building with the president's support. What are you making of this moment as a pro-democracy activist and a human rights activist? Absolutely horrifying that we've seen this performance in Washington, D.C., in the United States. It, It was the unthinkable, maybe five years ago, that this would ever happen in the United States. But it is happening, and it is the reality that we that we are now dealing with. But we have anticipated also because this this is not just uh, the result of of a speech that happened, you know, yesterday. It's the work of five years of of instigation of undermining democracy, of undermining what democracy is all about. In one hand, it makes me actually relate to Americans a lot more because we have that shared experience of dealing with authoritarian folks in power. But on the other hand, I know how much worse this could get. And uh, I can't 
I can't have that. I'm not I'm not living in an under another authoritarian regime in my new home of the United States. Not gonna happen. I see a lot of claims and posts on social media comparing what is happening in DC with other countries that have had a history of anti democracy. Do you think that those comparisons are fair? I think they are absolutely on point and I um, personally have been one of those people who <laughs> make those comparisons, actually, since before Trump made it to the office. You know, like you can't, you can't ignore these signs. You can't ignore the authoritarian tendencies of this, uh, of candidate Trump. It's a person, if we, if we are observant uh, enough, he's a person who says exactly what he's about to do and he does is exactly what he's what he says and i don't know why we keep getting surprised by his actions because he makes his intentions undeniably clear we saw this coming uh, this is what he has been building up toward when uh, when this when 2020 began casting doubt about election it was so obvious that he's going to try to pull something like this it's absolutely disheartening to see how little prepared forces were for this moment because it was coming long coming we should have prepared better we have a mutual friend who posted a comparison of uh, a man sitting in nancy pelosi's office and a houthi sitting uh, in the office and occupying an office in yemen what do these comparisons get at what do they try and articulate or understand? What's the efficacy of them? I think what, what we are all trying to say is that, yes, the U.S. is not another country. Um, it's, it's a very, it's indeed a special country. And things are not going to go here the way they go in Yemen. Not exactly. But at the end of the day, regardless of how strong our institutions are, how cohesive our social fabric is, we still are vulnerable to that fate that is faced by Yemenis or by Sudanese or by any people in a place where democracy has collapsed or never existed. And that is a very real possibility. And it's something that we need to be better prepared for, that democracy could indeed end, chaos could take over. You know, it, it is conceivable that the United States become any of these countries that break your heart, should things go as bad as we fear? I think for Yemeni to see parallels between uh, what uh, Trump supporters did yesterday and, and, and Houthis uh, who did exact same, exhibited the exact same behavior of hooliganism and random mob behavior that, that we have seen yesterday, that is, that is a very very inherently human thing uh, and it's and the US is not immune to that human very human tendency to pull something like what we have seen yesterday we just got to be more vigilant and we got to prepare our democracy here to be able to deal with that very real and very conceivable scenario. Maybe we should back up a little bit and give our listeners a bit of context for the comments you just made and for you and your work. You first became globally renowned as a leading activist in civil and human rights through your leadership in the YALA, Young Leaders Peace Movement. What is YALA and how did you get involved? 
Yala is an organization created back in 2011 in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. It was a group of young people from all over the Middle East and North Africa who wanted to use technology to break you know, the barriers and the taboos of talking to each other, um, nations across conflict lines that normally would have no no kind of connection. A special focus was given to Israelis and Palestinians who are completely disconnected from A, each other, but also from the rest of the region. And what we did is forge these uh, connections between young people and have them work together to find alternatives to the, to the status quo, uh, to try to break the status quo by, by inventing more youthful solutions to aid all the conflicts that between the countries but also all the uh, break down the walls of hate created by the lack of knowing each other. That movement grew from few very enthusiastic group of you know Palestinians and Israelis and myself to a million member uh, plus uh, movement, and still one of the biggest youth movements uh, in the planet today. One of the reasons I asked you to come on here is that your work as an activist and a global leader focused on humanitarian human rights and youth empowerment and peace across the Middle East and Africa is that in that leadership, you've notably enlisted tech, social media in particular, in your work. Is there a relationship that you see between tech platforms and activism? If so, how would you describe that relationship? Absolutely. Uh, the, rela- the relationship is very strong. Uh, tech and activism are inseparable at this point in time. In my role, I am always <laughs> vigilant about you know security and ha- heavily critical of uh, platform shortcomings, but at the same time, realize how much harder and, and nearly impossible the work we do right now would have been without these giant uh, platforms that exist today. The Arab Spring was the first time young people uh, tried to leverage their newfound connection with each other that was provided by Facebook at the time. And it was a very profound change that hit planet Earth in the wake of the Arab Spring. And it didn't stop there, and movements continued to to pop up everywhere. When young people are that connected across such a large geographic space, they will inevitably push together to change and interrupt their reality and their projected fate. And I think that is wonderful. As scary as it is, it is wonderful. And uh, it is definitely going to change the world as we know it for the better or for the worse it's inevitable the world is about to change and there is no way around making all of these tech platforms partners in all of this part of what i really want to get to in talking about this dimension of activism that you work on and the relationship between uh, global activism and technology is that these social media uh, platforms and global connectivity are just essential to not only kind of connecting young leaders in a region, but allowing young leaders in one region to learn from the activism in another and to take that kind of paradigm and then enlist it in their own activism. What link do you see between social media and activism in the global context in your experience? I think the learning that happened in the last decade, the amount of learning and exchange of ideas between activists and between young people uh, of all walks of life that happened in the last decade is enormous. I think more exchange and more knowledge has been passed through these tech giants than 
than maybe 50 years of, of, of organized education that, um, you know, and, and formal education that, that existed in a lot of these countries. Like, they are catalysts, uh, these platforms, for positive change or negative one. It depends on how, how much of a good partner they are, are made and how, how we as civil society work to ensure that they continue to make their uh, platforms a positive place for this kind of exchange and this kind of education and relations forging. But it's not just the tech giants that make our job possible. It's also all the open source, all the dark web also platforms, you know, are lesser known to, to the average individual, but they make, they make up for a lot of the space where this exchange of ideas as well as direct support network outreach uh, happens, not just the Facebooks and Twitters. It's also all the mirror platforms that exist on the, on the dark web are definitely much safer to be part of than Facebook and Twitter and others are. I have to pick up on something you said a bit earlier in the answer to my previous question, which is the negative sides of that kind of global connectivity exist in concert with the positive ones. And I guess if we're giving social media credit for helping to unify social activists around things like human rights and democracy, and if we're talking about the link between social media activism and the activation of social movements, we should also maybe touch upon its counterpoint, social media's capacity, as we're seeing lately, to engineer extremism and also anti-democratic tendencies. What's your take? I mean, that's been actually a problem for a while. It really reached its peak in the West uh, very recently, but the, the echo chamber problem has existed as well as, you know, social media's ability to isolate communities within within a circle of fake uh, and, and intentional and unintentional information and disinformation campaigns is like a, has been a problem for a while outside of the United States. It wasn't it's it was actually so much worse than it is in the United States even today outside. And I think social media obviously create due to the way, to the business model that they need to follow uh, in order to make them monetizable. They, they create these echo chambers where people end up surrounded by those who sound exactly like them. And then within that echo chamber, depending on what, what ideas unify that community, sweeps in all the corporate uh, targeting for these for these communities that might be unethical, that, that the kind of advertising they are exposed to. But also, on the other hand, it's a perfect place for different kind of extremist groups to recruit. Right now, I can, using the tools provided by Facebook and others, I can target down to 10 meters uh, people with content that can help radicalize a certain kind of personality. You are able to find your perfect victims if you're an extremist you know, group like ISIS and others. The perfect victim from wherever you are and you can target them with the content that will speak to them very personally and will help push them over, over the edge and into the hands of extremism. That is very, very dangerous ability and, and power to have. And uh, sadly, it has been utilized quite well by extremist groups all over the world, any kind. It's supremacist groups, uh, the, uh, the Islamic terrorist groups, the you name it. There is somebody working to target that audience, wherever they might be, with the content that speaks to them personally. And uh, sadly, I can say, like, I have seen a lot of attempts by social 
media platforms to address that. But till this day, I don't see anything that is effective that has been done. Um, the problem still exists. So then does the technology of social media then just require us to accept the bad with the good? Because I talk to a lot of technologists who, you know, when I press them about the concerns around social media's tendency to activate extremism by connecting extremists and amplifying voices that incite and reward extremist views, as, as you may know, the algorithms that govern these platforms tend to do, these technologists argue back that essentially the platform is a neutral tool, that users are responsible for determining the function of essentially that the task of these platforms is connectivity regardless of the context or the outcome, and that the users determine the direction of that connectivity and that the good that is created by the connectivity outstrips the bad or makes it irrelevant or inconsequential. How would you respond to that? I say absolutely not. It's actually, if anything, it's equal the bad and the good. Uh, I mean, you know, the peak of peak of uh, like uh, success for connectivity is a democratic uprising in one country. But look at what's happening in this country, in the anchor for democracy. It's legitimately threatened by by the exact same technology that made that one possible. We are in a country that is swimming in. In, in, in conspiracies, wherever you go, coast to coast. And, and this is largely thanks to the way social media is, you know, is made uh, and, and how it's created and the how the algorithms work. We are surrounded by people, listening to people who sound just like them, wherever they are in the world, and uh, keep feeding them more and more of that worldview. That, that's not something to ignore compared to an uprising in Sudan that uh, overthrew a dictator. It's equally dangerous, e equally massive thing. I reject that view that it's negligible uh, effect. It's not negligible. It's absolutely terrifying effect that we have, neg the negative of it. It's terrifying just as much as as, as as amazing the positive is. So then does the technology of social media require us to then accept the bad with the good? Or are there ways that we can get the good and pass out the bad? We can. We absolutely can pass out the bad. And again, this was not always the case. Like this echo chamber, chamber phenomenon is the result of changing the platform's business model in order to be compatible with the highest advertising uh, capability possible. This is not how always Facebook has been. This is not how always Twitter has been. When they were created, that's not how they, they worked at all. They fundamentally changed in the past decade or so in order to make the monetizing as effective as possible. So they have something to do with it. They can do something about it. So back to those early days of the internet, you know, the utopian vision that really spawned the internet broadly and social media specifically was this vision of a platform that was supposed to democratize access to information, both receiving it and distributing, right? So, so what does that mean to democratize information? Actually, you know, when, when, if you look at 2007, 2009, 2010, Facebook, it was an inherently different product than it is today. Information today is not democratized. It used to be, though, at some point when everything shared had an equal chance of being viewed by everybody, wherever they are in the world. Right now, that has changed. 
everything shared is not equally given the opportunity to be exposed and, and, and viewed by, by everybody in the world. Actually, much of, the, of, much of what is shared is only targeted towards only those who will actually see it. And I'm not talking about paid content. I'm talking about content that you put as a user on the platform. You're not going to see all what your friends share. It's those friends who you interact mostly with who also happen to have similar leanings to you. That's what you're going to see first. And that actually killed the democratization idea. Now it's just, it's just something that it's just a popular word to use uh, that we're going to democratize, you know, like access to information. But the reality is it was like that when these platforms launched. It's not anymore. I think all of us right now are really thinking about the health and the function of democracy. And a lot of us are connecting that health or that failed health of democracy to digital technologies. In your view, have digital technologies impacted the function of democracy and the health and the direction of democratic institutions and movements? If so, how? Absolutely. And I think both way, negatively and positively, the potentials offered by the connectivity that we have right now for improving our work as civil society, of spreading proper civic educations more, for more effective also outreach and use, use of our institutions, the potentials are enormous. Uh, and that's a positive change. But again, it's also, it could be quite dangerous for our institutions. This connectivity, this hyper-connectivity could, could make, could dilute actually functions of some some of these institutions. I, I'm, I'm talking and I'm, I, I just have in mind how much easier has it been for us to work on with U.S. government actually since COVID, how much more effective we have been talking to different State Department offices, how much time we saved this year doing a lot more than we do normally. Thanks to U.S. government finally going digital, and, and all these um, institutions that before wouldn't, wouldn't even consider that kind of digital way of doing things, but were forced to switch. And as a result, we did like a, maybe two years worth of work in, 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 in a matter of few months on, on issue education. That's great. But again, I think, I think never has the State Department as an institution been more vulnerable than it is right now. Because even during, during, during these times, I remember the few conversations I was not supposed to be part of and probably, probably classified that I ended up in by accident, completely by accident. More uh, intentional work to get, to get to U.S. government by enemies of the United States uh, could, be, could be quite fatal. I were a spy, you know, trying to get some information on the United States, I could have, I could have probably gotten. And this, this made the, the institution as a whole a lot more vulnerable. It's questionable, in my opinion, whether or not that's the pandemic or the, uh, the Trump. <laughs> Incompetence. Incompetence, exactly. Questionable. But give me an example. What's one of those conversations? Yeah, I remember ending up in a call that I certainly, certainly shouldn't be on. We, we scheduled a call with one part of the, the State Department, and then we were, through some accident, ended up on a wholly different call. Uh, yeah, I don't know how, how, how much I can share about this, but 
certainly something that a foreign person shouldn't be listening listening to again i'm like love the united states i'm not a citizen so i can't can't really i shouldn't be listening to a lot of a lot of a lot of conversations that are that are classified but again not just uh, not just that i'm foreign but i also don't have the clearance to the security clearance to end up on such a call so the fact that i was there by accident i could have stayed i immediately I immediately when realizing i'm in the wrong call uh, we hung uh, hung up but uh... well this podcast is not <laughs> the podcast is not in the business of releasing national security uh, secrets yeah. So I will not press on those questions any further. I'll switch gears to another section of questioning and maybe maybe pursue the line of questioning that I am extremely curious about, which is, I wonder if you could speak a little bit specifically about Sudan and the recent revolution. And then maybe if you could direct that question to whether or not tech played a role in the movement? And if so, what was that role? Sudan has been under an autocratic governance for about 30 years or so. 1989 is when democracy ended in Sudan, and a dictator by the name of Omar al-Bashir took took office and has been subjecting uh, people of Sudan, left and right, especially women, to heinous treatment, what they called Sharia law, but also committed a genocide in, in Darfur against the indigenous African population there and conducted one of the biggest tragedies in Africa in his holy war that he launched against people of South Sudan. So the man had had this uh, long coming. And in late 2018, December 2018, a, an uprising place in Sudan that lasted for about five months before uh, al-Bashir was forced to force out of office. It was a peaceful uprising with not a single stone thrown at any property or individual for five months of protesting uh, and not a single incident on the part of the protesters, despite the fact that the al-Bashir regime has been unhinged about in cracking down on protesters, including use of live bullets and, and all kinds of uh, oppression methods. The very reason that uprising was successful in bringing down al-Bashir is the level of organizing, the organized disbursement of information, the, the sophisticated use of social platforms to conduct this uprising and to steer it, it was really impressive. The Arab Spring happened before and it was, again, where social media was heavily used to organize, but it did not really have this level of sophistication of use. It was, you know, mainly groups where people meet and create events uh, on Facebook and then they meet in that one location and that's how it started and that's where it ended the use of these platforms but in the case of the Sudanese uprising social media played a massive role in intelligence collection by the protesters you know like when people recall the Sudan uprising they recall women women leading the uprising and uh, playing the intelligence role in that uprising and what they did is create through, through Facebook, a, a massive network of women who are all over the country, in every neighborhood, in every street, there is a member from that group 
it included more than half a million women from all over Sudan. And what they did was when protesters are attacked by any individual, wherever they are, all they are asked to do is take a photo of that of the person doing that assault. And what they do, they share their photo in that group. Someone, because Sudan is is much more connected than than the United States is. Uh, everybody knows everybody. On you know, like everybody's like three degrees removed. They identify who they are, and these women would actually for, to retaliate against that one person. They would share everything they have on him, including dating history, who has he been, you know, cheating with, or uh, who has been, you know, who has ever dated him and what dirt they have on him uh, in that period. And with that, they actually forced members of national security to completely abandon al-Bashir, doing that systemically for five months, terrified every member of the uh, al-Bashir forces from attacking a protester. And that that really what changed the calculus for, for the protesters on the street. Suddenly, officers with all their guns, with everything they have, are afraid, afraid of a camera phone uh, and, and for their photo to be taken because that's usually the end of their social life. So that, you know, that's the, a very unique uh, peaceful resistance uh, technique that I haven't seen or heard of before until Sudan uprising happened and it would not have happened without the connectivity offered by social media in addition to that all you know like the protesters employed a, 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 tech, a technique of over sharing everything they are doing uh, and it really confused the government of Sudan because they publicly announced exactly the routes they are going to take and, 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 and directed people to, you know, to, to walk this street and that street. And it all happened in real time. And it really exhausted the government. They spent five months chasing every, every announcement made uh, by that central page of the SPA, the Sudanese uh, Professionals Association, and trying to just keep up, uh, keep up with that, keeping their security forces on uh, up 24 7 every single day for five months really took a toll on uh, on his security apparatus and that's why he crumbled it, they were exhausted and again protesters did all of that without throwing a single stone they dismantled that security one of the scariest security apparatuses in all of the continent of africa and they did it without without throwing a single stone tone and it was quite impressive what these women did and uh, and yeah and it's uh, it's all again would not have been possible without uh, the connectivity offered by uh, platforms such as Facebook. So then here's the question the big question as an expert on activism and democratic movements in the Middle East and Africa has tech in general, in broad strokes, been good for democratic movements in these spaces? And has it been evenly good? And I, I, to give you background for my question, I'm sort of asking here out of self-interest because there's an argument that at least in the United States, tech platforms have enabled a context in which agreement about basic facts is no longer assumed to be the case. People across the nation, uh, in, in our nation, live in these separate 
fact bubbles with their own truths. But consensus about those facts seems to be, in my view, essential to democracy for voting about how we should live. It seems obvious that we need to all make those decisions and evaluations based on a shared set of facts, even if the interpretations of those facts are different. And so to that end, digital technologies and internet cultures that enable what has been called a post-fact environment, have made democracies particularly vulnerable, many have argued, to being hijacked by anti-democratic actors. That's the United States, though. You were talking about Sudan. What about in the global context? Is democracy particularly susceptible to the kinds of, as I said, post-fact environments that technological platforms enable? What about these other spaces around the globe that seem to have mobilized around democracies precisely because of the equipment of digital technologies? How do you account for the fact that it seems to have been so important in mobilizing democracy in a place like Sudan and so destructive in a place like the United States? So again, I will go back to a point I I raised earlier that, you know, like while the United States are dealing with like fake news and, you know, and intentional campaigns of disinformation is relatively recent in other places it wasn't and uh, it's not new and and i and, and i will give the example of sudan where we've been dealing with you know russia hired disinformation firms that actually are you know like hired by the government of sudan to spread certain kind of ca- kind of information among people it's something that we've been dealing with for years years before it ever became you know a hot topic here in the United States. I think in Sudan, as in as in the United States as well, uh, it needs to happen at some point, some steering of conversations needs to happen by responsible civil society. The problems of fact bubbles uh, is not a new thing in the United States or created by social media. I think it's something that we've been dealing with for so much longer, just made so apparent recently. But I think since the invention of cable news, I think different parts of America have been dif- living different kind of realities and each narrated by a different media organization with a specific political leaning and um, an agenda. And I think that is that is just made so much more apparent because we are forced to see it thanks to social media. I don't think it's created by social media alone. Something that always existed just made so much worse. And we're... Yeah, we, we can't run away from it anymore. Can't fly over it, uh, if you will. Listen, like I think if we if we continue down the same path, there's no way around the fact that we're gonna get a lot more Trumps. Different presentation, different kind of populist, but people who intentionally tap into a pocket that they think they can get them elected. And I think that's gonna keep happening. This is not gonna stop. Social media platforms can, if made, if made the right partner, and if they let go of potentially some of their some of the algorithms that make them super wealthy right now, uh, I think we can get to a place where social media is doing more good than bad. But the trajectory we're on right now is one of further and further division, further and further disinformation. And, and thicker bubbles and echo chambers. And I think, I think that's not going to be helped without some intentional work on the part of civil society as well as these uh, tech giants because 
social media companies are not going to go away. It's it's part of our world as we know it today. And we just need to make sure that they are as helpful as possible. I, I want to pivot to a conversation that you and I had recently off the air a few days ago about the complexities of knowing and understanding and thinking about the lives of others who we have not and cannot interact with, those who live across the globe, who we don't ever know directly, but whose lives we know about through these hyper-mediated forms and increasingly through images and news that come to us in virtual space, on their Facebook feeds, through Twitter posts, or on web platforms. Um, I teach a course called Distant Suffering, where I look at the complexity of understanding the lives of others in the context of conflict and the experience of suffering of those others whose lives we only know from a distance. And, you know, to provide one anecdote, I remember, for example, at the height of what some people were calling a genocide in Syria, I, re I remember having an image of a clearly distressed Syrian woman in the foreground of a bombed out building and having that image show up on my Facebook feed right under a post by a friend featuring her smiling while eating ice cream. And, you know, the, the post was captioned, uh, my great ice cream adventure. And it was over a post featuring a cat meme by a, another friend. And it got me thinking about what it means to have this kind of access to and this very bizarre context for accessing human rights violations in the patchwork of these social media feeds. Do our technologies change how we think about the lives of others, particularly in the context of human rights abuses and suffering? It's two things for me. Like I, I do think more people right now relate to other people in, in a place that they never visited and they, you know, express real, true empathy to their suffering that they can't really fathom or, or truly understand. But at the same time, I think the hyper ex exposure to that created a lot of cynicism and created a lot of empathy fatigue among people. And it really worries me uh, sometimes. It's important always to, to raise awareness. But sometimes I think in the process of that, uh, of doing that, and a lot of people doing that on a lot of causes, on a lot of the tragedies happening everywhere, I think we're creating also a swath of people who are unable or don't have it left in them to be empathetic anymore. And I've met those people. I met quite a few of these people who stopped caring. Not that they never cared any any at any point in their lives, but they just couldn't uh, couldn't deal with it anymore. And and as a as a body reaction, they just it killed their ability to empathize in a way i mean that happens with or without social media but it's it's especially common now because that's how a lot of people get overexposed is uh, through these social platforms so i don't know i don't i don't know the answer if that is going to be ultimately good or bad always but i know for now i am worried i'm worried and happy at the same time I mean, whether it's good or bad, it's complex, right? Uh, what are some of the complexities of this kind of access? Because I suppose, you know, one complexity at least is that we have more access than ever before to knowledge through this kind of visibility. If something is showing up on your Facebook feed rather than, for example, that content being sequestered in the corner of an internet or on the news, you have to pay attention, right? 
are the reasons to be more critical? So here's the thing. You will see that content. You will not be able to ignore it. You will interact with it. That's great. But then because of the way all these platforms are tweaked, you will gonna start getting more and more similar content that you will again interact with and it will invoke strong feelings in you and the dose of exposure for that will just get higher and higher and higher. And by the end of it, it will create either someone hyper exposed and having to really super traumatize themselves just through the exposure because of the way, again, these algorithm, uh, algorithms work, who will either be dealing with some mental health problems for a long time or it will get them to fatigue and they are unable to empathize and result are not able to support and and that really worries me. This is a very real thing. You have to be very intentional to not get overexposed. You have to take steps to actually break out of that bubble that is going to get created for you just by the fact that you interacted with that content once. Well, the question really is, is do technologies change how we think about the lives of others, particularly about the suffering of others? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do think people genuinely connect with with strangers through what they learn about them and, and about their suffering online. And I think it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing that wasn't possible before. But again, I worry about the long-term effects on each individual. Yeah. I mean, one, one response is that people become oversaturated with suffering and then suffering that occurs doesn't cut us the way that it should because we're constantly exposed to it. And that exposure almost creates a sense of banality. The other sense of banality, of course, is seeing an intense image of suffering showing up next to a picture of somebody eating ice cream and smiling and next to a cat meme. And in that sense, in that kind of kaleidoscope of images, it just becomes one image among all of these other things. There's no context for it. There's no kind of like special significance to something when it's just an image among images. Right. No. That's absolutely a good point. <laughs> and yeah, I think I think it's exhausting really to go from from a woman in Syria going through distress and a second later going to a cat photo or I, I don't know if it's bad, but I don't think it's particularly helpful for our brains to go through that gymnastic of, of change of emotions. I want to go back to something you were talking about before. You you brought up the pandemic, and we probably can't talk about democracy and technology right now without also acknowledging that the backdrop for our conversation and for much of the events we are talking about here is a global pandemic. Has the pandemic changed the direction of tech as it relates to democracy or the direction of democracy itself? And more specifically, I'm going to add to my question here, the dynamic between tech and democracy. You could take any part of that question or all of it. All over, all over Africa and the Middle East, the, the regions we, we focus on, but also all over the world, we have been seeing systemic, you know, leveraging of this pandemic to, to crack down on democracy movements. This is true for all over the, the Gulf region, all over the Levant, all over Africa. We have seen the same 
pattern of of governments trying to use the pandemic and leverage it leverage it to crack down on democratic movements and to undermine democracy and democratic processes and it's certainly something that i i expected to also see in the united states although it's not it's not as extreme i mean we have seen a lot of crackdown, a lot of arrests, a lot of in Bahrain, in uh, in Lebanon, in Sudan, even in, in Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, arrests of of social, of democracy activists uh, that happened under the cover of public health and you know and banning of protests under that that same cover. I was actually when the Black Lives Matter wave uh, protest wave, I was actually on the look also for the United States who. And to see if if uh, the United States will get the same ideas on on, on banning these protests uh, under the cover of public health. Luckily, it did not happen, but that's not the case for much of the Middle East and Africa. Um, it was actually a very good opportunity for all these authoritarian regimes to cap ambitions, uh, democratic ambitions of democracy activists. And it's it's been a horrible time for democracy activists uh, all over all over the world from hong kong to africa to the middle east it's been it's been a terrible year uh, and it's been a bad year for democracy generally one last question that i think many of us believe has an obvious answer but that i think it would be helpful to articulate because i actually think the answer is not that obvious that is to say i think that many of us take for granted that democracy is inherently ethical and good But it's a lot harder to explain why it is good. And the explanations that I've heard about why it's good sometimes fall into a kind of what I'd call tautology. Democracy is ethical because democracy is an ethic. That doesn't really explain anything. That's a pretty circular logic. And it doesn't really get at much about why or even whether democracy is good in the first place. What makes democracy ethical? Is democracy good? I go back to Winston Churchill, really famous quotes on democracy, when he speaks on how, how terrible democracy is as a, as a system of governance, except all the other forms of governance are much worse. And that's, that's really the reality. There is, there is certainly something very natural about democracy, something very human and very natural about self-determination and the ability to, to cast a vote to choice, to choose a leader. Self-determination is, is certainly certainly granted by electoral system and uh, it gives that sense of, of self-governance, despite the fact that it's not really true, uh, when you cast that vote to choose a leader. Sorry, I have to interrupt you. I have to challenge you on that because I think a lot of thoughtful critics would say that democracy is entirely unnatural, that our tendency as human beings is authoritarian regimes, monarchies, totalitarianism, that democracy is the exception, that it takes an enormous amount of restraint and work and tending and care to continue a democratic system and that our our tendency is to always fall back into authoritarianism and that the miracle really of the United States, that the, not the miracle, excuse me, the surprise of the United States is not that a government threatened to topple democracy into authoritarianism, but rather that democracy lasted as long as it has. So, so just to challenge that natural tendency of electing leaders, 
I think that it's almost the opposite. It is the exception to the norm that we have a democratic system. Actually, I will I will push back again and go to the natural is going <laughs> looking back at every every authoritarian and every monarch in history. It never it was never a choice of a people and people always rebelled. It's our natural tendency to resist against against any monarch or any unchosen leader and that is been consistent happened consistently since we started organizing in little communities long before we had we had kingdoms and and and, and states except for except for the protesters at the capital who agitated <laughs> for a authoritarian leader i mean they they will always here is the thing to them to them uh, and to again it's a choice they see him as a choice they want and that is that is why they exist in the first place all these authoritarian leaders need a base that agrees with them that put them in power and that's how they they rule is by utilizing these these people who agree with their worldview every authoritarian leader anywhere in the world has hooligans just like that willing to die for them not just and kill for them. That is how Museveni is 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 staying in power in Uganda. That's how Al Bashir stayed for so long in power. They all had this base of those who extremely agree with them. And to them, that person is a democratic choice. Democratically, not democratically. Uh, I'm just gonna say that it's something that they voted for. They have a vote for. It's a choice they made. They were the minority in the popular and the electoral college vote. That makes their wish to install the leader of their choice undemocratic. Exactly. In the popular vote, they were a minority. So that to them, and I don't want to say all, all Trump voters will actually would go to the Capitol on his call, but that those who did, you know, to them, Trump is the ultimate choice. Taking him away from them is actually undemocratic and against their choice. And that's, you know, that's how they see it. Maybe this gets us at, to the root of what democracy means and some of the contradictions in democracy. On the one hand, you have a group of people saying that their choice is this president and that their choice is the one that matters. Of course, another definition of a democracy is not just the one that I choose, but the one that the people choose as a whole. In, in, in democracies, very frequently, individuals concede that they will not get their choice because the will of the people writ large as an aggregate has chosen otherwise. And I think that this really gets me to one of the you know root things that I think about when I think about the relationship with, between democracy and ethic, because as, as an ethic, democracy also is not just the idea that my will will be heard, but that I concede my will at times to the will of the broader public, many of whom disagree with me. And there's a principle of civic disagreement there that I think is so important to articulate, the idea that one does not get to choose for the whole. I mean, democracy is more than, than, a, than a process and, and casting of a vote. It's also an agreement between people that whatever happens, the majority will, will, will rule, the minority will be protected. And that belief is what makes the game possible, right? The, 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 the contest ethical and everybody feeling that they will be okay regardless. With the people you saw yesterday, with a lot of people around some 
new democracies, that is actually not a given, not a given thing, and they they don't see it as a given. And I think this is this is again a problem that probably existed long before Trump and long before this year and long before social media aided all these bubbles. There is a very real issue of civic education in this country and what that agreement is all about and what unifies this country together is all about. I think I think there is a gap there and we have been complacent as civil society. I'm now speaking as an American civil society, you know, member. And I think we have been complacent in doing our part to make sure that people understand this game fully, understand what make this country a whole is and what this democratic game is all about and that they will be okay regardless because to a lot of these people, they feel a real threat. This is why they are, you know, so useful for people like Trump is to find people with a lot of anxiety, real or unreal, that it's real to them. They are living in a state of anxiety and someone says, oh, I'm going to make you okay. The reason they have anxiety is because they don't really understand what this country is is all about and what this agreement is all about, that they're going to be really okay. You know, the white voters feeling that as though they are threatened in this country, that they're there is a white genocide happening in this country. Yeah, that, that is that is a very real anxiety to address for us as civil society. Sadly, we haven't been doing that. We're reliant on our civic education on cable news right now. It's how people learn uh, about what the institutions of this country uh, are all about, what's happening in the capital of this country, what is say, who is saying what is is done by 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 cable news and by shows like you know Colbert and others like this is inherently wrong i think we need to be doing a lot more in providing true and apolitical education on the politics of this country and really deconstruct what what all all these uh, anxieties come from because they are they are not true you know that i know that but they don't know that to them, it's very real. And here comes a savior saying that I'm going to rescue you, you know, specifically. I think this is a problem that's going to remain uh, for a while. And again, social media, part, uh, you know, companies can play a positive or a negative role in that. Right now, all, all, the, all the role that is being played by, by, by these platforms is actually making that problem worse. By, by bombarding them with more and more of people that agree with them as and content that speaks to what they already agree on. If there is enough will, they could be actually made a partner into breaking these bubbles and really deconstructing all these fears and anxieties because otherwise we are headed toward a much more dangerous territory than a Trump pre- presidency. These problems are going away. Okay, okay, okay. I know I said that that was the last question, but you just brought up so many new things that are now on the table that I have to ask at least just one more. You brought up civics and, you know, I think above and beyond anything that I'm trying to teach and explore about the ethics of technology, I'm really after civic questions here. And if Pace Winston Churchill Democracy is an ethical system, as you have argued. And if we as professors and teachers are the guardians of it as a civic kind of lesson, passing it on to the next generation, 
And if we are teaching the next generation of technologists, what can we and what can that next generation of technologists do to keep democracy, to guard democracy, and in particular, to make sure that our technologies both safeguard democracy and continue to build it? I think we need a collective, collective, better investment in our civic education efforts. We need to up it significantly. That sixth grade class you take is definitely not enough. I think we need to have a lot more exposure to realities of, uh, of, of our institutions and our democracy and all the pieces that make our institutions function and explanation of, of how this country works and other countries also uh, outside of the United States work and, 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 and really put in enough resources and intentionality in delivery of these uh, information. Because I've seen it over and over, a lot of people in this country do not really know how this country works at all. Like not even a little bit. I came here to, to the United States and knowing a lot more than a lot of Americans I met about how your electoral system works and a lot, how, how a leader is really chosen in this country <laughs> and what to do in case of what uh, you need to get what done. I think, uh, I think this is really a sad, sad, sad reality, but it is reality. And the way to deal with it is with better investment that than, uh, in, and, and time dedicated for and resources dedicated for that purpose than what is available right now. Partnership between you as educators and these tech platforms uh, on delivery of this information, of that education, is a must in order to scale and leapfrog the knowledge of the average American about democracy and about civics. Thank you, Muhammad.